For better or worse, William S. Burroughs was a character through and through. He had all the attributes of a gentleman, loyalty, honesty, generosity. But on the other hand, he also had about every known vice. He was a heavy drinker, a drug addict, a criminal, and a homosexual at the time he got his first book published in 1953. His first novel would read like a report, but from the wrong side of the tracks, as though it was an account of a condemned man sent to the electric chair, which wasn't far from the truth. Burroughs writes as if he were a visitor to some strange jungle tribe, bringing back details of their odd customs with him. Intriguing and shocking in equal measure, it was impossible to put down. On the surface, the book appears to be an objective slice-of-life document on the subculture of addicts, but when we analyze it in the context of Burroughs' alienation, the book is about finding a place to belong, which, in the end, isn't that what we're all striving for? Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, outlaws, and the addicted. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we're exploring the novel Jack Kerouac thought was better than anything Hemingway ever wrote. This is William S. Burroughs, Junkie. Desperation is the raw material of drastic change. Only those who can leave behind everything they have ever believed in can hope to escape. End quote. Born on February 5, 1914 in St. Louis, Missouri, William Seward Burroughs II was enamored with words from an early age and had a desire to become a writer even as a child. This love for literature very likely stemmed from his father, who would often read stories for him. Treasure Island, Kidnapped, Moby Dick, as well as Victor Hugo's Toilers of the Sea, with its encounter with an octopus, which was never forgotten. These stories were all regulars. It has also been said that his father made young William learn five new words a day and how to use them in sentences in order to broaden his vocabulary. Burroughs came from a very traditional upper-crust family, which meant that he was expected to carry himself a certain way. His grandfather had invented a model of the adding machine, which was widely adopted by American businesses, and though much of the fortune had been lost by William's arrival, the traditions were deep and deeply instilled in him. In his family, displays of affection were considered embarrassing, but... Despite this, it was apparent that William was his mother's favorite, above his older brother. Later, when he was older, his mother told him that she worshipped the ground he walked on. As a young boy, he suffered from nightmares. He was afraid to be alone and afraid to sleep, afraid that his nightmares would manifest themselves in reality. He recalls hearing a maid talking about how smoking opium brought sweet dreams. He decided then and there that he would smoke opium when he grew older. For him, writing was an alternative to the disappointing world around him. At age eight, inspired by Ernest Thompson Seaton's biography of a grizzly bear, he wrote, 
autobiography of a wolf. In Seaton's book, The Old Bear, Saddened by the Death of His Mate, slinks off to die in the animal cemetery. In William's ten-page opus, The Wolf, Saddened by the Death of His Mate, who has been killed by hunters, is attacked by a grizzly and then killed. His mother, proud of her son's abilities, would show the book to her friends, who would ask young William, You mean biography, don't you? No, I was right there with the wolf, he would reply. He identified with the wolf. When he was 13 years old came a big turning point in his literary life when he happened upon a book that would to a large degree inspire his first published novel. Written by hobo and burglar Jack Black, the 1926 novel You Can't Win was the memoirs of a professional thief and drug addict. Teenage William was taken by the book as it showed him ways in which to rebel. But unlike the hobo in the tale, having no reason to steal anything, Burroughs would break into empty houses and just stroll around in them. He attended the John Burroughs School from the 7th through the 10th grade. By all accounts, he was not a joiner or a team player. He didn't go for sports and thought the whole idea of school spirit was pointless. His alienation would not be diminished after he was told by a fellow schoolmate that he was indeed a character, although the wrong kind. His father was a mechanic and inventor, but never achieved the success he hoped for. As a result, he discouraged his son from following in his footsteps, wanting him to instead take a steady white-collar job. William did what was expected him for most of his youth, and even attended Harvard University. Upon graduating, however, he began to rebel against the values of his family and the norms of society with determination. What would follow would be many years traveling, smoking hashish and snorting heroin. His trust fund was ample enough that it allowed him to live without working or hustling. After moving to New York, where he met his future wife Joan Vollmer and got acquainted with Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, a new literary world would open up to him. After a long stint dedicating himself only to letters when it came to the art of writing, he would begin experimenting with new styles of literature as well as various drugs along with his new friends. In a few years, Kerouac, Ginsberg, Burroughs, Lucien Carr, and Herbert Hunky would become the core group known as the Beat Generation. It is safe to say that Burroughs' biggest controversy, besides his writing, is the death of his wife Joan Vollmer and his part in the very unfortunate event. Joan Vollmer was the roommate of Jack Kerouac's then-wife, which is how she came to be introduced to Burroughs. She was an incredible and charming woman, and friends thought she and William could be a good match. At the time, he was mostly involved with men, but something sparked between he and Joan nevertheless. They were both passionate about traveling and drug use, which developed into, of all things, marriage. In 1947, she would give birth to their son, named after his father, William S. Burroughs III. Although married, he would continue to have flings with men, which caused Joan much grief. Then, in 1951, four years after the birth of their son, the couple took an ill-fated trip to Mexico City. 
Joan was at the time doing a lot of benzedrine inhalers as well as consuming a lot of alcohol. He was also heavily involved with drugs and alcohol. On September 6th of the same year, after Burroughs had returned to Mexico City from a long trip with his new young boyfriend, Joan threw a small homecoming party for him. At the party, he drunkenly proposed that they should move to South America so he could hunt wild boar. Joan joked that if he was the hunter which they would have to rely on, they would starve to death. This provoked him and he dared Joan to show what kind of shot Old Bill was, a la William Tell, which meant shooting an apple off the top of Joan's head. Under the influence of drugs and alcohol, she put a gin glass on her head and he took aim. Her last words were, I can't look. You know I can't stand the sight of blood. He fired, completely missed the glass, and struck his wife instead with a fatal shot through her forehead. Having had eight to ten drinks, he would later state that he couldn't remember much of that night. Deepening the tragedy is the fact that their four-year-old son was in the room when the incident occurred. As a note, their son, young William III, would go on to write two autobiographical novels of his own before his alcoholism sadly ended his life at age 33. Burroughs would later tell the investigating officers in Mexico that it was an accident that while showing some friends his gun, the weapon fired, killing his wife. Eyewitnesses, however, tell that Joan's death was attributed to the drunken William Tell Act. After returning to the U.S., he was convicted of manslaughter and absentia and received a two-year suspended sentence. Concerning the death of his wife, he would later comment, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I never would have become a writer but for Joan's death. Quote, Happiness is a byproduct of function, purpose, and conflict. Those who seek happiness for itself seek victory without war. End quote. As mentioned earlier, Jack Black's book, You Can't Win, was the blueprint for Burroughs' novel, which would be titled Junkie. An autobiography, You Can't Win describes Black's life on the road, freight jumping, the hobo underworld, being imprisoned and at times escaping prison, and his various criminal capers in the American and Canadian West from the late 1880s to early 20th century. In a way, Junkie can be taken to be a sequel to You Can't Win when you consider the way Burroughs tackles the subject of his own experience with the underground world of addiction and drugs and documents them in a similar fashion as Jack Black did. Out of Harvard, where he majored in English literature, he came out hating university and hating the town he was living in. Wanting to break away from the world he had been confined by for so many years, Burroughs sought an escape through drugs. And by consuming drugs, he found a way into an outlaw society that he found to be no worse than so-called normal society when it came to morality and ethics. The addicts he encountered were a sorry lot. They thieved and whined for credit and apathy. On the other hand, he didn't see the citizens of so-called street society to be any better with its informers, corrupt cops, and hypocrite doctors. 
It seemed to him that both groups were generally made up of unsavory characters, with a small sprinkling of decent folk. They were in actuality the same, only on opposite ends of the spectrum. According to his writing, he tried heroin out of curiosity, which unfortunately led to accidental addiction. It seems, however, that he was masking his true motive for trying out the drug known as junk. The more likely reason was his attraction to a society that existed outside the norm, a society of outcasts and rejects and people who lived outside the law, a society that drew him in. Like a key, the use of junk would allow him an entrance. In those terms, junk had a social use for him as it helped him find an acceptance he had been longing for. Like any social group, the addict underworld had its codes of conduct. First, they were suspicious of newcomers and appreciated the knowledge of those more experienced. Furthermore, they had clear rules around what was accepted when it came to scoring and pushing drugs. It seemed highly regulated, just like the outside world. It also carried with it a widespread urban subculture with a universal language and etiquette. This allowed users to pick up junk most places they went. As a washed-out newspaper reporter, an OSS candidate, along with many other attempts to join the mainstream, Burroughs had failed time and time again. Thanks to junk, ironically, he found his place in a society which did not exclude him. Besides, and the hippos were boiled in their tanks, which he wrote with Kerouac years earlier, Junkie would be his first novel, and he was therefore lacking the confidence he would display in later books. He played it pretty safe considering the style. He keeps his eye on the subject and seldom strays off into stylistic depths. This would serve as an advantage as his precise and clear writing helps pave the way to an unromanticized exploration into a previously unexamined social group. The book would most likely not have come to be if it hadn't been for Allen Ginsberg. Impressed by Burroughs's letter-writing skills, Ginsberg began to insist that William should write a book. To Ginsberg, it seemed that Burroughs' only route to redemption was to exercise his talent for writing. Burroughs, seeing a career opportunity as his friend Jack Kerouac had gotten his first novel, The Town and the City, published in 1950, took up the task presented by Ginsberg. There were worse things in the world than becoming a published author, he felt. And with Allen Ginsberg acting as his agent, he felt that he had a definitive shot. As Burroughs sent Ginsberg chapter after chapter of the book, Ginsberg began to appreciate his eye for the precise sociological detail, as well as his absence of self-pity and self-protectiveness. The book pulled no punches. It told the truth, however, it was controversial and ugly. Ginsberg did the rounds of his contracts in the publishing world, but the book was repeatedly rejected by numerous publishing houses, including Doubleday, who referred to Burroughs's prose as not very good. It became quite apparent that no one Allen inquired wanted to do anything that had not been done before. They didn't want to take a risk on a new style of writing, and not to mention such a controversial topic. Ginsberg hoped that his friend Carl Solomon, whom he had met during a stay at a mental hospital, could help him out. 
Solomon was working as an editor for his publisher uncle, A.A. Wynne at the time, and would be essential in convincing his uncle to take on the book. Carl Solomon was an odd figure in his own right, and had a peculiar approach towards writers. He would insult them and tear apart their works to see if they would give up or fight back. And when Jack Kerouac sent Solomon his novel, On the Road, which we dive into in episode 26 to be reviewed, he was told that his prose was that of a nasty, stupid, worthless, idiot brat son of a royal house. Acting quite out of the ordinary, Solomon and his uncle Aaron Wynn liked Junkie when it was sent to them. They saw a positive angle to the story since Burroughs had tried to get away from drugs. They understood, however, that it had to be tackled with great care, given that the portrayal of drug addiction in those days was out of bounds as the subject of a book, since addiction was seen as an absolute evil. Addicts were called dope fiends, and straight society, which made up most of the reading base, saw them precisely as such. Fiends. To cover himself, Wynn decided to publish Junkie as an ace paperback, coupled in the same volume with a book by a former agent of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Maurice Helbrandt. This way, the law enforcer and the lawbreaker would have equal time, making it easier to justify. Then finally, in April 1952, Burroughs received news that A.A. Wynn had paid $1,000 for Junkie and it would be published. It seemed to Burroughs that, along with his friend Kerouac, he had hit the jackpot. He had a $1,000 advance, and with Junkie coming out, he could finally call himself a writer. I owe it all to Allen Ginsberg. He's a real friend, Burroughs wrote to Kerouac on April 8th. The book would be published in 1953 as a 35-cent two books in one. One cover was Junkie by William Lee, Burroughs's maiden name which he used as a pseudonym, with the subtitle Confessions of an Unredeemable Drug Addict. He used a pseudonym so as not to allow his parents to find out that he was the author and had been involved in such dealings. The book validated him. It gave him a profession and a purpose. It reignited that desire to write that had been there as a child and teenager. Unfortunately, at its publication, the book went completely unnoticed to begin with. There was not a single review as no one wanted to touch a lurid paperback exploiting the taboo subject of drug addiction. On May 15, 1953, while Burroughs was in Peru, he got word that Junkie was out and that A.A. A. Wynne had run an ad with blurbs from Jack Kerouac and John Clellan Holmes. A week later, he received $270 as part of his advance, money he immediately lost when a young boy stole it. He didn't have to worry for long, however, as within a year, Junkie had sold 113,170 copies, a more than respectable amount for a paperback in those days. The reputation of the book, the controversy of its subject and its author, would soon introduce a new literary voice to the world. His next novel, Queer, would be written in the same reportorial style as Junkie, and was similar as both books were about scoring, of one sort or another. 
He would later ask himself why he wanted to chronicle such painful and unpleasant memories and decided that writing was a way of achieving immunity from the events described. By exercising these demons, they acted as a vaccine. Writing was also his way of fighting back against the ugly spirit he felt possessed him, that being the same spirit that he blamed for the death of his wife. Junkie, as Burroughs put it, was a way of life, one deserving of notice, and one that is good enough to land the book on the list of exceptional confessional novels. As usual, let me leave you with a final quote, this one being a poem from the perpetual outsider himself. Thanks for the wild turkey and the passenger pigeons destined to be shot out through wholesome American guts. Thanks for a continent to despoil and poison. Thanks for the Indians to provide a modicum of challenge and danger. Thanks for the vast herds of bison to kill and skin, leaving the carcasses to rot. Thanks for bounties on wolves and coyotes. Thanks for the American dream to vulgarize and falsify until the bare lies shine through. Thanks for the KKK, for nigger-killing lawmen filling their notches for decent church-going women with their mean, pinched, bitter, evil faces. Thanks for Kill a Queer for Christ stickers. Thanks for laboratory aids. Thanks for prohibition and the war against drugs. Thanks for a country where nobody's allowed to mind his own business. Thanks for a nation of finks. Yes, thanks for all the memories. All right, let's see your arms. You always were a headache and you always were a bore. Thanks for the last and greatest betrayal of the last and greatest of human dreams. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Also, I'd like to take this time to congratulate Audrey for being the winner of our first anniversary giveaway. Our lucky winner will receive a book of their choice from the books we've covered thus far in our episodes and a House of Words t-shirt. And with that, once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemour Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason M. Warhardt. And music by Creature 9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Hart.